Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. Be sure to follow uh, our show on your podcast platform. Just click the follow button and you'll keep up with all of our latest episodes. And you can download our 2023 sponsor kit and learn more about the show and our international client and agency side audiences on our homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. I think it was Jeff Bezos who said that your brand is what people say about you when you leave the room. That sounds about right, I think, except for one thing. Brand is also about what people feel about you, and and feelings are much tougher for people to express, certainly to others, and I think particularly in a research environment. So if you're not careful, the risk is that you might be uh, feel that you're led to believe that your brand is centered around practical factors, factors that people find easier to articulate in the moment. Byron doesn't believe that people retain much about a brand, and he appears to dismiss emotional motivation. But I believe we can't rely on what people say about brands to determine how they truly value or consider them. There's a difference between what we can express rationally in the moment and what we retain emotionally in our minds. So we've got to be careful not to dismiss the unarticulated emotional appeal. But Byron is right that people don't retain much, and I think he shares the frustration that many of us in the industry do, which is our preoccupation, or at least the preoccupation of too many of us, with navel-gazing when it comes to brand and brand articulation. You know, it could be brand onions or layered messaging or convoluted bullseyes. Some refer to Byron as the dark lord of effectiveness. Like many in our industry, he's blunt and unapologetic, and I like that about him. I think, like strategists, he stands behind his beliefs, and that should be applauded. Yes, he lives in a black and white world, so he's very dismissive of those who live in gray. Problem is, the industry primarily exists in that place. As Byron says, the fact that his principles have not yet been widely adopted across organizations doesn't mean they're wrong. Now, it may feel easier to ignore what Byron writes than it is to realize that you don't have to give up on what you believe in order to incorporate his principles, selectively or otherwise. He doesn't ask that of you. They can coexist. You can coexist. Our conversation isn't about the principles in his book, How Brands Grow. The book was published over 10 years ago, and my goal was not to revisit it. I guess I just wanted to try to better understand the man himself and talk about a few things that baffled me about his work. So what surprised me about our conversation? Byron is a strong believer and an advocate for the power of creativity. That definitely surprised me. That's not something I expected and was not something that was evident in the early part of this conversation. And nor did I personally get that from reading his books. So I found a lot of comfort in that. Lastly, as regular listeners know, this is not an opinion show. I don't argue with my guests. I like to think of myself as playing the role of a fan, not a critic. This episode, like all others, is about understanding better, not tearing opinions apart. So you, the listener, are all smart enough to draw your own conclusions. Lord knows we're an opinionated bunch. So here is my conversation with the director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, research professor Byron Sharp. Enjoy. We'll be right back. 
Hello, my name's James Herman, and this is my best Fergus O'Carroll impression. But actually, I sound like this, and now that I got your attention, I want you to consider becoming a master of advertising effectiveness, which you can do with me on a six-week online program that'll give you a next-level understanding of how to make advertising that creates consistently better commercial results. Over the past decade, institutions like the IPA, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and Walk have used huge evidence bases to uncover what really works and how it works. And now all of that knowledge is yours when you become a master of advertising effectiveness. Our next cohort starts in April. Check it out at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. The reason I've done this, Byron, and invited you on is because I'm consistently um, um, sort of baffled as to why here in the U.S. we don't appear to have the same level of understanding and acceptance of the principles of effectiveness and i've talked i've talked with uh, uh, other guests on the show who are in the same general uh, area as you are and there is sort of a collective agreement that we don't really have those strong voices in what is maybe arguably the largest advertising market uh, in the world and um, i've put out a call many times for you know, names of either institutions or of individuals who are known in the U.S. as being voices of effectiveness. So, and I don't get good answers, and and it's un, it's unfortunate. And that led to this conversation because I, I feel that when I talk to marketers and agencies in the U.S., there is not as much of a familiarity and an acceptance, it seems, um, we, or at least there's a selectiveness in terms of the way they think about effectiveness. And I'm just curious, do you find that to be the case in general when uh, you're dealing with the U.S. market? Do you feel that there is that, that there is somewhat of a gap? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is pretty active in America. We've we lots of sponsors in America, but uh, I think your point is there aren't many people with would call them thought leaders with, with American accents. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, no, uh, certainly CEOs and CMOs will, will often remark to me, you know, if they're if they're of global companies, that uh, it's and they're on a you know journey towards evidence based marketing. That uh, it's the US operations that are often the most problematic, hard, hardest, hardest to uh, move along the journey. I I'm not sure why that is. I, th I think maybe a, a certain degree of insularity. The U.S. market is a very big market. It tends to uh, there's a cute there is a cute thing where U.S. firms will list their revenue as you know U.S. revenue and then international, <laughs> <laughs> all the rest of the world. Apple used to do that for ages. Still, you know. <laughs> It's a strange phenomenon. I, I think that, uh, and I think it's great to see that Warwick is making a big push into the U.S. Uh, we've done we've done our six part series on effectiveness here recently. Uh, we focus less on the sort of the the uh, the measurement of effectiveness at the back end of a campaign, but more about how can we be how can we be effective at each stage in developing strategy and develop defining objectives in developing creative briefs in executing campaigns through media, et cetera. We, we kind of took it in buckets and said, how do we work better in each bucket 
to be more of to create more long term and not long term but to create more effective outcomes so we, i'm very supportive i'm very supportive of that and if you don't if you don't look at all those little things i think people who run um hospital wards like you know things like heart transplants and things like that i mean they will they will have all the little metrics along the way because just working out that you know your ward is below the national average is not very helpful um well it, it tells you something but you know, it tells you you have a problem but it doesn't tell you in any way where where are the weak links in the chain in fact i remember a eminent surgeon saying to me when he built a great uh liver transplant unit and he said we realized that the key was you know it was obviously the surgeons are important but the, the, really the the success of the uh, overall success depends on the weakest link in the chain not not your superstar surgeon so yeah. you have to look at every little thing along the way and you know chief if you go to a chief financial officer and you, you point out these, these are the these are all the things we're working on to improve all these things they understand that and they understand that you know they're not going to judge advertising by whether a market share goes up next year because that's going to depend on all sorts of things the economy the weather and what competitors do uh they, you know so to be fairly judged you should say well we want we want to be judged on these things that we agree uh and as you said the quality of the relation quality of the working relationship is a terribly important part of that how would you describe the difference between what you and Ehrenberg Bass do and what people like Peter Field, Lesbonette do? How do you do you see a similarity? Do you see them as being the same or or do you see them as very distinct? Well, Lesbonette wrote to me just recently and he said, uh, we're what do you use? He said we we are mere alchemists. <laughs> you you guys are the scientists. We we just play around. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. That, that I mean, no. I, that's, I mean, Liz is that they're, they're doing. They're trying to do. You know, I, I suppose they would say, you know, the amateur gentleman scientists as opposed to professionals. And and yeah, I get that. Um, you know, they 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 work with the data they have, and they're paid to do things. Um, and so the, yeah, the different the difference is we have to. Um, well, we're, we're classic scientists. We 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 replicate things over and over and over, and 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 have peer review, massive amounts of peer review and criticism of ourselves and the institute and things, so that we uh, to you know get an answer right. Um, so I suppose that's part of the difference. We're a lot more, as I said to Liz, we're a lot more pedantic. So uh, the sixty forty ratio is just. A silly thing it's uh, to, to have a ratio of of uh, th those things is is doesn't make sense and unless it's like yeah all right yeah but whenever i talk about you know long-term brand building versus the catching people who are going to who are in the market today people ask me you know how much should i spend on each so i think it's sort of useful to have a, a ratio even though yeah I, I agree there is no set ratio but you but you also I mean, you agree with Don, with John Dawes ninety five five rule, which is in, in essence a ratio, right? And it's it's uh, no, it, John, it John that. that that is actually is expressing the um, negative binomial distribution that that shows most most of buyers are are very infrequent, um, right? He was just using those terms, and, and Liz would say the same. I, we just use sixty forty because you know, <laughs> faster number. My point is, it doesn't make sense to have a 
a, a ratio of those two things. You work out how much money you should spend. I mean, you can think of it as, I mean, in the olden days, there was a budget for in-store, right? And that was held by the sales people. Right. And there was a budget for advertising, which was the broad reach individual consumers. And they were separate budgets and you spend as much on each as you needed. No one wanted to work out a ratio between them. In fact, if there was a ratio between them, for most consumer goods companies, it would be that more was spent in store than was spent on advertising. Um, but then to take your advertising budget and slice that up into a ratio where you're spending some of the money in store, uh, sorry, you're spending some of the money on catching people when they fall, which, you know, you, you can because uh, things like, you know, Google search and stuff like that is is like shelf space, uh, I think leads to less money being spent on creative advertising, which is not Les's intention at all. I think he thought 60-40 would encourage people to spend more on advertising. Um, so you, we're, we're, much more, we're much more pedantic when the sense that Liz will go, oh, well, you know, it's not really true and something, but it's sort of a useful guide. Whereas we're academics and we go, you know, our, our sole allegiances to the truth. So we, we we tend to say, well, it might in some circumstances be vaguely useful, but it might not. And it might be terribly dangerous and it is also wrong. So we need to ask these questions. So do you see a distinction between what we might in the industry talk about and what we have been talking about as brand advertising and performance advertising? Do you see, which is what that whole construct 6040 is based upon? Yeah, let, let, let's let's frame it in a different way. Um, marketers are in charge of building and maintaining two important market-based assets. One is mental availability, population, and then the other is physical or purchase availability. Uh, and you need both of those, and you need those to overlap. Right? Otherwise, right. you know, you get something into a store, but everyone who comes into the store doesn't see you because you're not in their head, well, then you get no return from it. Uh, and so all the great brands, the big brands of the world have much higher mental and physical availability, which is the big story of the, the book, How Brands Grow. It's the theory that binds the scientific laws together. You know, it fits with the scientific laws. So if we think about that, we've got work that we do on making sure that when people go to buy, the people this week or this day who are going to buy we're actually easy to purchase right? and that we're in their stores or we're all, we've got the app on their phone or whatever. Uh, and then we do other work, which is what you, I think we're calling brand advertising, which is we're reaching people, reaching the brains of people who will not be buying most of them, most of them, a few of them will buy this week. And so we hopefully have a, you know, nudge on those, but the vast majority are not going to buy for a long time. Well, they just bought yesterday or you know or they're a child who hasn't got money yet you know th this right. is a very different thing and uh we should spend as much on each as is appropriate on each there's no set ratio between the two when you look at mental availability what what are the component the key components of that for you because this is something that i that I, I remember when I first read the book, I was, I, I, and I think because there was, and this is a problem we have in our industry, and every industry has it, there are assumptions that are made in industry and in life that we tend to sort of line up behind and believe 
for no other reason than the people that we think are more experienced in the category or in the industry than us, uh, they talk about. When I read your book, it was frustrating. It was frustrating, man. It was a hard book to read because a lot of the things that you stated um, go absolutely against what we might have believed in the industry. So you've upended a lot of these assumptions. And yes, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't intentional. It's just that science has a tendency to do that. Uh, as I like to say that the real world is a, is a weird place and uh, we can theorize all we like, but we've probably got the picture wrong. Uh, when we go out and look in the real world, we, we discover hmm, weird things. Yeah, no, it's true. And and I think that and I think when we when we look at those assumptions that have been upended, there were there were there were some that I disagreed with because I just have I just come from you know one perspective. And others that made total sense to me. But it was I've got to think that it has been tough for people in the industry to adopt these uh, principles, tough only because it goes against their beliefs. Have you found that to be a reality? Because, as you say, you you consult with various companies. Has it, Have certain aspects uh, and principles been easier to get adopted um, or uh, over others? Or, has, or, or how, what's, the, what's been the reality of the experience for you as these principles rolled out? Because the book came out in 2010, so it's been in market for a number of years. Uh, yeah, and we've been working with sponsors for, for way before that. In fact, they were the ones who asked for the book to be written. I think all our sponsors would say they're on a journey towards evidence-based marketing and they realize it is, um, well, some say it's two steps forward, one step back. You know, um, old myths and assumptions are really hard to really kill them and they keep seeping back into the organization. So, um, but that that's the reality. Um, almost every scientific discovery Um you know the, the 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 people who first discovered you know germs in effect you know were were hounded out of the profession. <laughs> you know, it took ages for doctors to yes. realize this. You know it was because that was it, that clashed with the dominant theory of the day, and also had implications that maybe doctors have been killing people because they've been spreading germs around when they touched them, um, which was true, but obviously not uh, very attractive to the medical uh, industry. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it, you have to be realistic about this. It takes a long time for people to get their heads around stuff that is actually, is yes, uh, you know, really counterintuitive. Um, as I say, the real world is a weird place. You, you asked what are the things that are hardest or easiest. I think certainly I would say one of the most um, uncontroversial things that we presented was that um, branding was about with, with distinctive assets, I'm going to say that that people went yes, yes. They are, that's understanding your distinctive assets is is terribly important, and people yes. found that um, reasonably they were pretty okay about that. It was, but it's quite interesting. I mean, we're doing distinctive asset measurement every single day, so people people ha- have got that 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 is important that they should do that. That said, I think there's a lot of marketers who still feel a bit uneasy about the saying that you know the things that do the branding are the distinctive assets and that and branding is all about looking like you a lot of marketers want to take branding into a much more um metaphysical realm that you know branding is making people somehow fall in love with the brand or 
the distinctive assets have some special meaning or something. And we're like, mm, no. I think the way we think as an industry is, um, is that what you're recognized for is more important than simply being recognized. Do you do you agree with that? Do you agree that when I see a distinctive brand asset, that in my mind it triggers an image, a memory, and that that is? Oh yes, absolutely. But we've got to be humble and realize that um, there's not much there, right? The main thing is that we look like us, but people don't think. I, I tell a funny story. I was in Switzerland visiting. I think it was craft then, but you know they're in the Toblerone chocolate, which you see in yeah. It, I know it's not very big in the US, but you see it in duty free stores and things. It's the triangle shaped one, right? It's that's the distinctive thing about it. Right? It's the triangle shape, and um, they went, you know, and I mentioned this great brand, fantastic, you know, and they went, yeah, it's a triangle, it's a mountain. And I went mountain. No, yes, it's a mountain. It's on, it's on the pack. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, there's a mountain on the pack. Oh, how interesting. They, and they went, it's that one. Went, what one? The one behind your shoulder. It's, it's the Matterhorn, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very famous I'm like, oh, I've never noticed that. Never noticed that at all. There's also, if you look really closely, there's an image of a bear, which is, uh, I think, is the, you know, the symbol of Switzerland or something. And uh, nine again, 99.99% of Buyers of Toblerone have never seen that. We all go, it's the chocolate one. It's the triangle chocolate. Right. So we have to be humble and realize that consumers don't actually, the distinctive assets are terribly important that we look like us, not someone else. But the, the idea that 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 we're going to get them to know lots about us, it's going to evoke lots of other things. I totally see what you're talking about when you talk about knowing lots about us. But knowing certain things about us sure. is what you're right. saying, right? You're saying distinctive brand assets. It is because for me, I was, I remember when I first read the book, I was thinking, and I was thinking, you know, you're right. But then I was sort of questioning an aspect of it. For example, that is this simply about people just recognizing your name, your packaging, your brand colors, which I think are critical, no doubt about it. But it has to go beyond that. I mean, I, you know, no, it doesn't I, actually, it doesn't have to go beyond that. It might sometimes, but, but, but it but can, it right? It can. And that's where, and that's yeah. where I think, um, distinction, but, but distinction but, but, is more than we, colors. What, what right? we raised though is, uh, that marketers have way overweighted this, this idea of brand love, differentiation, something, a cool factor and things. And, and, and like that's, you know, maybe that exists, but we've really, it's like we actually when we when you properly study markets rather than just looking at a few little silly case studies, uh, it's really hard to see much of that. That's really not a big story. Whereas mental and physical availability, well, that's a very big story. And when you think, gosh, so marketers were all into this brand level and some stuff, but hadn't measured their distinctive assets. That looks near criminal. I mean, it really looks like we're off in la-la land, not focusing on the important things and, and chasing rainbows. So let, let me ask you one point on this before we – because as a strategist from an agency side of the world and as a, as a researcher, a qualitative researcher, I've always noticed that the methodology upon which we gather data is critical 
to the type of responses we'll get. In other words, that it's the understanding why people are answering the way. And that sort of laddering question gets you to those deeper issues. Is your sense that those deeper issues don't exist or did the methodology never explore them? Because on a surface uh, level, people will give you ra- rational ra- rather, decisions. Rather, I mean, as a scientist, you know that all your instruments are, have flaws. And so there's this thing in science called intersubjective certifiability where you you use different methods and see if they're saying the same thing right, to make up for this problem. Um, and we, you know, some of the stuff that was done like on brand love, like Susan Fournier stuff, um, she interviewed six people about their coffee consumption for three hours, paid them as well. And you, you know, you look at that as a method and go, hmm, that might end up delivering the researcher what the, the, the researcher wants to find. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. I, I, we know that every method has some things, but when 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 you start looking at multiple things and they all come together, and if you look at the laws that are in how brands grow, they 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 do come together and they start to paint a different sort of picture of the world, which prioritizes things like distinctive assets, looking like you, and uh, worries less about uh, what do people think of the brand, you know. So uh, Jenny puts it, you know, really well. The, the perspective is, um, you know, what makes people do they think of your brand? What makes them think of the brand? What makes them see the brand? That's important. What they actually think of the brand, uh, you know, not so important. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I, that, that's so hard. To, a, that is so hard to, uh, to. I mean, you can you can. You can understand that. It's like, that's so hard to digest because when you say what triggers them to think of the brand, um, that is in essence what uh, what they think about ultimately um, is the brand, right? An awful lot of people on the planet, McDonald's is a big, uh, big business, multinational, American, sells greasy food makes people fat. None of those are positive things, right? That is the general, if you ask people to think about McDonald's, that's what they'll do. But what are the things that make people think of McDonald's? It's things like golden arches, uh, you know, it's million little distinctive asset things they've got, which is fantastic. So McDonald's has fantastic mental and physical availability. So for you, uh, for you, when you see two brands of cars, do you, in your own mind, think of them as being different in any way that's that's meaningful to you yeah you know ferrari is different from aston martin one's italian one's british yeah we think of these little things but they turn out to be not so so people love making comparisons between something like ferrari and toyota and you're like well you know but you know yes that's quite a lot of difference there but not so much difference between ferrari and lamborghini and maserati they're all pretty acceptable brands, right, to the people who are buying those. And so they have to compete pretty hard for mental and physical availability and pricing and stuff. We have to be humble as marketers to realize that people don't actually think that. I, I love pointing out that there's something like 30,000 higher education institutions in the world. Right? So you'd think that one of the ones that say the most, I mean, most, most of them we can't name, right? Um, by the way, I'm from the University of South Australia, which you probably don't know very well. Uh, but let's take one that you do, right? So the tippy tippy top, say, let's take uh, Oxford. 
Right. What do people know? So they don't know about most of the brands in the world uh, of, of university, but they do know Oxford. So presumably they know quite a bit about Oxford. What do they think of Oxford? They go, uh, it's British, uh, uh, rowing. Um, Ivy League. Ivy League, Stanstone Buildings. Didn't Harry Potter go there? I don't know. You know, that's all they know. <laughs> and that's Oxford. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a that's a terrific way to differentiate between Oxford and University of Michigan. Yeah, of course, because Oxford is much harder to get into than University. And we know this, right? I mean, we don't need to get too you know deep into it as marketers and do brand onion exercises and commission great research. We could just ask a kid off the street, right? It's frustrating, and I I find this frustrating too to to work inside a major brand and have the research folks within the company come in and lay out these quant studies that show that we are better perceived in terms of quality or a brand for me or these sorts of measures. Are we asking the wrong questions? Are Um, we looking for differences that don't actually in reality exist, which is in essence what you're saying? I mean, Dan Humby saying to me, yeah, we have to turn all the segmentation stuff into indexes because if we just showed the raw numbers, people would realize that every brand's selling to the same segments. So, you know, so we have to torture. Uh, I remember when um, young Rubicon kindly gave us their brand asset valuator data. And then we, we looked through it and went, you know, the perceived differentiation measures, um, look, there's virtually no difference between any of the rifle brands. And I went, no, 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 look, that one's scoring four percent and that one's scoring six percent that's you know 50 percent more we went but they're all scoring incredibly low i mean where do you so gerald goodhart very famous statistician said hmm where would they draw the line you know is 0.01 uh bigger than 0.1 i mean the real lesson any norm that any hopefully you know Get off the street would say is gee all those numbers are really really low most of the buyers of those brands don't see them as different that's the big story what about imbuing your brand with assets and not just color design shape but feel but feeling with imagery that is in essence what's that's a reality of what the industry does tries to do and does. I, I I can't move off of that. I look at an example like uh, Beats by Dre, right? So Beats by Dre comes into the market, whatever that was, many years ago. Uh, kicks the ass of Sony and Bose in the headset world. I think takes like, I don't know, I mean, it's very significant, like, I think majority share, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, but mm-hmm. share at least in the no, 30s, pretty, 40s fragmented market but yeah they i mean they had wonderful product placement that they were able to put their head. so their headphones looked like their headphones and that was a problem headphones headphones were designed by you know audio geeks and they tended to all look the same or well you know they looked like headphones they were functionally designed and beats went no let's make beats headphones look so if someone sees them on their head it's a bit like that you know the remember the original apple uh white things for uh yeah the ipod yeah. yeah. So if you see someone, you know what they're wearing. And Beats did that and 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 put them into almost every music, not every music, but they put them into a lot of music videos, which is uh, that was great advertising placement. Yes. 
indeed. And but you you've I've got to assume that you would you would give uh, and you would sort of you would recognize the fact that the the appeal of Beats was not its design, it was not its functionality. It was well, the fact that it was design. associated. It was associated with popular culture. Well, yes, no? but, but yeah, it was. It was associated by Dre and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yes, yeah, so there's the social proof thing. But no, I don't, 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 um, don't underestimate design. Design really matters. Uh, but design are, without context means nothing. No? Um, I mean, human, if, if human beings, we are, we are the tool making monkeys, right? We, we love. Why would why would anyone buy a Swiss watch? Really, I mean, you can, I mean, you know, your phone tells you the time perfectly. You don't need it, right? And you certainly don't need to pay twenty thousand euros. So why do why do we actually get joy looking at this rather antiquated, actually, you know, sort of medieval craftsmanship? Because we love that stuff. We love things. Um, we know it's, it's a social like, signal. It's a social signal, and that's. Part of, but we also just have a joy of no. Actually, watches aren't that much because the, really the main person who looks at a watch is yourself. Hardly anyone else notices your watch. Uh, well, you we, know, if, we, if, it, if it matters stuff. to people, they do, right? It's like it's like jewelry. It's an accessory, I suppose. It's like yeah, fashion. Said, you know, I, I do get that thing of being male jewelry, but it's not terribly effective. But but we get great joy. It's a weird human thing, right? We actually get joy just looking at at. At wonderful craftsmanship, and so the beats were beat. They they looked great. Yeah, they were headphones that looked really great. Yeah, yeah. But I, but my thing would be if um, if Bose had designed those, my my theory would be that they would not have become as dominant. They became dominant because of the role that the symbols that they became in popular culture and and, and who, we, who they were anchored to, right? It's a real danger that we tell these just so stories afterwards. You know, um, I recommend Duncan Watt's book of uh, Everything is Obvious Afterwards or something. I think it's called. Do you think our, our problem as a marketing industry is that we overestimate what consumers retain in long term memory or that we're just bad at making what matters memorable and meaningful? Marketers have a, we're not very disciplined. And so we, we, our communication, our branding isn't um, consistent. We don't know which uh, distinctive assets we should be using. Paul Michaels, the first non family CEO of Mars, was, came up the ranks from marketing. Um, he brought back the MMs characters because some, not so clever marketing director for M&M's decided at one point to stop using the characters because, um, you know, what are these cartoon characters? What do they say about chocolate? I don't know. You know, just did not understand their, their role as a distinctive asset for doing the branding. And Paul Michaels did, brought them back. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar brand today. Um, so, you know, these lessons, marketers, we lack the discipline without discipline, we've been called. When I see the the sort of the the effectiveness measures that uh, like um, uh, that Les and Peter and Wark look at, and maybe the Effies look at, I'm not sure if they do or not, but um, it, it's the there's sort of three pillars that I think of that they base sort of effectiveness on. It's usually time in market, it's uh, marketing mix, 
and its spend. And, um, but no mention of creative idea. Right. You know, there's no, there's, and I I don't know why that, I know, I I know I've asked, I've asked the question of them and the general sense is that it's difficult to define what that element is. Um, Do you look at that at all? In other words, what do you feel is the role, is the role of creative strategy uh, or creativity in developing successful brands? Okay, so marketing science is very supportive of, of uh, creativity, partly because of this understanding that consumers don't think of us very much. They don't really care about us. They don't sit down in front of their you know, YouTube going, yeah, I really want to watch those pre-roll ads. <laughs> um, <laughs> so creativity is terribly important for doing something that puts a spotlight on the brand. And it's very hard to do that. We've done a lot of research. Nicole Hartnett is... Um, uh, did a PhD looking at you know all sorts of different creative devices. Is there anything that we can come up with as sort of, sort of some guideline? I think she'd summarize it as saying, no, not really. There is no magic formula to creativity. Uh, all sorts of different ways to do it. But we we know what the objective is now, which is to is to refresh and build very simple memory structures about our brand. Uh, not to make not to achieve you know religious type conversions or make people think that our brand is just so much better than the other ones or, or you know, it is just to build some very simple memory structures. Uh, so that's the good news, but it's really hard to do because um, people have very bu- busy lives and they don't, they don't, they don't care. You know, they're buying shows. They don't terribly care. They buy, they buy, they're loyal. They love being loyal because not because they fall in love with brands. They love being loyal because uh, stop, they don't, they can shop faster. They buy not all the brands in the market. An individual person doesn't buy all the brands that are available, but they keep returning to a few in their repertoire. This this tells us what our objective is, which is we need great creativity. Is just not optional. We need we cannot have boring ads or ads that look like our competitor or things that people would just just don't resonate in their heads. Creativity is really, 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 that's why we have agencies. Not for them to do strategic thinking, but rather than to do great creativity. You have, you've come out and said that according to your, your research, differentiation doesn't matter. And I don't want to get into the details of it because it's, you know, it's been argued, it's been argued many times, but is there, is there reason? It doesn't matter. It's just, um, it's way overrated by marketing strategy books as being, you know, you must have differentiation. Most of most of the great multi-billion-dollar brands of this world don't have very much differentiation from their rivals. They're not seen as terribly different. You know, hey, what's the difference between HSBC and Citibank? Um, hmm. They're both right. international banks. Yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. You know? There are hundreds of thousands of people who will graduate this year with accounting degrees and go out to be accountants and they will form practices that are pretty much identical to every other accounting practice. That's okay. So differentiation could, could simply be in your distinctiveness, right? Yeah. It's distinctiveness. It's quite a different thing. And judges, legal judges make a very clear distinction between the two concepts. Distinctiveness is branding. 
you if you if you can prove it you can stop other people using it and you can keep that forever differentiation is about things that actually uh give some benefit to consumers and and you can have patent protection for a little while but that's it firms are allowed to copy differentiation so if i if i look at I don't know if you guys um, have the same campaign. I'm not sure that if the work I'm seeing for Apple here in the U.S. is is um, yeah. is international, most likely is. But a lot of the work that we're seeing here for the latest iPhone is based upon distinctive features. But it is done in a very distinctive way, even though that feature yes. may not be yeah. ownable, right? Yeah, uh, fully ownable. Um, yeah. That to me seems to be what we should be doing is that we need to do differentiation in a distinctive way so that it becomes memorable. Well, uh, if you've got <laughs> if you've differentiation, yeah, 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 talk about it. Um, Apple's a very engineering-driven company. I mean, they make product. They make great products. So they like talking about product features, uh, which makes perfect sense. But they are sensible enough to realize that they have to that they are managing a brand and everything has to look like Apple. I remember when I first read the book, I was like thinking, geez, it's going to be, you paint sort of a bleak picture for, for sort of smaller brands. Um, Do I? Yeah. I mean, meaning that if you don't have, and and some of it makes sense. Oh, because you don't have much mental and physical availability. Well, uh, because you don't, and you don't have budgets that you can outspend and you can get, and you can't get distribution, et cetera. What is what is what's the advice you have for a brand that has some distinctiveness? I mean, is it about buying as much reach as you can rather than yes. buying? Yeah, yeah. Look, from let, let's let's accentuate the positive. If you're a really <laughs> small brand, you know you don't have to sell a billion. You're not aiming to sell a billion units this month, right? Whereas if you're Coca Cola, you do have to do that. Otherwise, you're going backwards. Uh, so the, you know, the good things you have. To, smaller targets. Um, and, and so the principle is the same. You still want as much reach as possible. You want overlapping mental and physical availability. That's probably the hard thing for a small band. It's so much easier for a big band to just by statistical fluke have overlapping mental and physical availability. For a small brand, it's harder. So you have to be disciplined and manage that. But there's nothing, the double jeopardy law says that small brands, it just says what they are, which is they have fewer customers and those customers are slightly less loyal. That's just the reality. It doesn't mean you're weak or um, uh, inherently doomed. And in fact, we, we're doing a lot of study of tiny brands. And um, no, a lot of them, they, a lot are very stable. They, they last. If you read how brands grow and you read about you know, mental and physical availability, I suppose one of the takeouts from it is that it would be hard for a small brand to grow. And of course, we know that is true. You know, Most of them don't. Uh, it would also suggest that big brands are not going to tumble out of the market uh, very quickly. And of course, that is what we see. We see you know, a lot of big brands are you know, 100 plus year old brands. So this, there is that lesson, but it certainly does. There's nothing that says that a big brand can't lose share and that a small brand can't gain share. It, it, Double Jeopardy does not say small brands are weak, nor does it say that big brands have inherently, you know, any great strength. They have, but they have lots more mental and physical availability. And that yes. does not appear overnight. You know, you don't wake up one morning and get a letter from Walmart saying they've just 
delisted Coca-Cola. You know, it doesn't happen. So, hey, my my last question, Byron, is um, what's to come next in the marketing sciences or or what is happening now in the marketing sciences that um, we should look forward to and that's exciting you? Well, Jenny Robinson's just released a book on um, a sort of guide to brand tracking, which uh, if you're into brand tracking would be uh, quite exciting. Um, As I say, we're doing lots of research on um, tiny brands. We do lots more media research. Uh, There's just so much to know in marketing. There's so much that we don't know. So uh, Ehrenberg Bass Institute is become quite big and uh i don't think it's going away anytime we don't we have no shortage of really interesting um research questions uh yeah this is an exciting time to work in marketing in the particularly the evidence-based side of it for sure yeah i mean when i was when i went to university you know you you learned the marketing mix and uh you know you learned all this descriptive stuff like there are these things called ad agencies there are these things called media agencies, but you didn't learn anything particularly about, you know, you didn't learn anything particularly scientific about the world. Uh, you just learned things that, you know, most people sort of know, uh, which is very useful as a young person to learn that. Uh, but it's really exciting that we've gone beyond that now. You know, when I talk to chief financial officers and things, they, they you know, they're delighted. <laughs> It's marketing people are becoming more evidence-based. So one of the... makes it so much easier to give them budget and trust them now. Yeah, it certainly helps. And and Lord knows um, they need to be able to build a stronger case. The yes. um my my final thought is when we look back at how brands grow, are and we all know that the sciences are not static, that there is there is there are shifts in thinking over time. Are there any principles within how brands grow that today you think should be updated? Well, uh, it's quite interesting. The book doesn't talk at all about overlapping mental and physical availability. And it doesn't talk about the implications for when you don't get that overlap right. So, and that's very useful, particularly for new brands and things. So that that is definitely, uh, is probably one of the biggest omissions. Um, but in the ten years, probably the main thing is we've we've just seen more and more evidence that the patterns hold in areas like b two b and things that you know people might have uh, questioned and luxury brands and things like that. So um, that has been very heartening. Um, yeah, but as I say, exciting times, new discoveries all the time. Stay tuned. Thank you, man. It's Byron Sharp. Uh, Byron is a professor at Ehrenberg Bass Institute, research professor and director at the University of South Australia. His book is How Brands Grow. And uh, there are many great uh, books and publications and papers coming out of uh, of uh, Ehrenberg Bass that affect all of us worldwide in this industry. And uh, I want to make sure that in the U.S. we begin to pay a lot more attention to it. Thank you for your time today, Byron. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.